This is Sarah Hopeful and Nate Weggehout with your local news coming to you live from our homes and the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss was handed another loss in an ongoing court battle regarding the Republican investigation of the 2020 presidential election. Voss was ordered by the Wisconsin judge to sit for a deposition that will question whether Voss complied with the law after he hired a former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice to lead an investigation into election fraud. Former Justice Michael Gableman claimed without evidence that the election was stolen. A taxpayer-funded contract paid him over $675,000 over six months. The contract expired last month, but Voss hasn't provided an additional contract despite claiming that the investigation will last much longer. On Tuesday, Wisconsin Republicans introduced multiple bills that will fund police recruitment and retention, prevent local governments from banning no-knock search warrants, and require schools to teach students how to respect and cooperate with police officers. The bills, which will include signing bonuses for officers and increased reimbursement for annual officer recertification, will be funded through $25 million of federal pandemic relief. Police officer recruitment has been decreasing for the past 10 years. After the death of George Floyd by a police officer in the summer of 2020, resignations have increased in police departments, while the number of applicants shrunk even more, according to a police executive research forum survey. Demand for Wisconsin frac sand increased slightly in 2021, despite many of the state's mines remaining idle. Frac sand is used in the hydraulic fracturing or fracking process to fracture rock and extract oil or gas. The increase in demand is caused by mines in other states that are experiencing higher demand for extraction, coupled with production problems in their own state. The Madison School Board will be holding a public meeting tomorrow night to discuss the return to in-person teaching. The meeting comes after the school board announced last Thursday their decision to extend winter break and to return to all virtual learning starting this Thursday. Parents expressed their frustration with the board for the late timing of the decision, leading to parents having to scramble to make plans for their children. The Capital Times reports that the meeting, which starts at 5 p.m. tomorrow night, will also include a public comment section. Board member Chris Carusi said the board needs to be committed to reopening next Monday unless a severe lack of staff keeps them from reopening. The meeting will be streamed live on the Madison School Board's YouTube channel. The Madison Public Library says they loaned more than 1.3 million physical materials to patrons last year. From January to November of 2021, Madison Libraries rented out 1,324,057 items across all locations, including the Dream Bus. Meanwhile, the Madison Reading Community checked out more than half a million ebooks and audiobooks. Those checkouts totaled 567,490 ebooks and audiobooks from the start of the year to mid December 2021. Sequoia Library was the most popular library to visit in person, serving, serving 97,252 patrons, followed by Central Library. Finally, Madison Libraries issued more than 10,000 new library cards in 2021. The COVID testing site at Public Health Madison and Dane County's South Park Street Clinic will add additional appointment times this week, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. 
The clinic at 2230 South Park Street in Madison will now be open from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day this week, including Sunday. This move will add an additional 1,700 appointment opportunities to the clinic. The changes were made to meet the high demand for testing in Dane County as the Omicron variant continues to spread. You can schedule an appointment at the clinic online at the Public Health Madison and Dane County website. The Dane County Humane Society is asking everyone to bang on their car hoods this winter before starting their car. Why? To save cats. Our feline friends can be known to climb into engines or in the wheel well of cars in search of a safe and warm space to stay during cold months. DCHS says that just a quick bang on the hood before you enter your vehicle can give cats and other small creatures the opportunity to escape. Even if you park in a garage, they suggest performing performing these steps because you just never quite know when an animal will find its way inside. And now, on to today's top stories. People convicted of a felony in Wisconsin can't vote until after they have completed their sentence, probation, and parole. Now a new bill at the state legislature could restrict voting rights for some incarcerated people further. WRT producer Nate Wegehout has the story. The pair of bills introduced to the state legislature today would further limit voting rights for people who have been convicted of a felony. Under current state law, those people convicted of a felony cannot vote until they have finished their sentence. They also cannot vote until they are off probation, parole, or extended supervision. The bills introduced by Republican Representative Shea Sortwell of Two Rivers and Senator Dewey Strobel of Sockville would tighten who could vote, allowing only those convicted of a felony who have paid off all fines, costs, fees, surcharges, and restitutions the right to vote. Representative Sortwell told WORT that the bills were about, quote, fully paying your debt to society, end quote. Strobel says the bills are to help help victims of crime find justice, and the restoration of one's right to vote should be contingent on all debts to society being paid. Nicole Porter is the Senior Director of Advocacy at The Sentencing Project, a nonprofit working against mass incarceration in America. Porter says that these new bills are a step in the wrong direction. Given that in recent years there's been efforts to eliminate these modern-day poll taxes or these fines and fees obligations as a part of one's voting eligibility. Washington State, as a matter of fact, just last year eliminated the fines and fees obligation for citizens under community supervision that's on felony probation or parole in order to be able to register to, to vote. And other states, including Louisiana and Alabama, have addressed these fines and fees obligations as well because it is a part of this long history of working to intentionally include and marginalize certain citizens from the electorate, and it should not be overlooked by, you know, the residents of Wisconsin, the overrepresentation of, you know, residents of color, black residents in particular in this category. These bills come with disproportionate effects in an already disproportionate system. A recent report from the Sentencing Project finds that Wisconsin imprisons black people at a higher rate than any other state in the country. Madison Representative Francesca Hong says that the bills are part of a larger GOP push across the nation. Kind of 
what I'm calling the conservative cookie cutter bills, where a lot of my colleagues are essentially copy and pasting template bills from conservative think tanks to continue to regress and undermine um, our democratic process. Our democratic process. The bills are similar to those passed in Florida in 2019, which the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, called a poll tax at the time. In 2019, the ACLU challenged the bill, but the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals sided with Florida in a 2020 decision. Larry Dupuy, legal director for the ACLU, says that the issue is hard to overcome for many people in Florida already. The practical reality that Florida illustrates, though, is just how incredibly, just sort of administratively impossible this has become for the the criminal legal system in, in Florida, has all kinds of problems with documentation of whether or how much people owe. So there are all kinds of difficulties that people, even people who can pay, have had difficulty determining how much they owe and then paying it off. So it's it's just been a complete nightmare in terms of just administering this process in Florida. And the same would be true here. When the bills were posted online, people called the bills a new poll tax for Wisconsin. Nicole Porter says that America has a long history of poll taxes with felony charges. That obligation is similar to the restrictions imposed on black residents during the Jim Crow era to really impose barriers to voting, access barriers to access to the ballot because of the intentionality around, you know, working to limit the electorate, restrict the black electorate at the time. The bills are currently circulating for co-sponsorship. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie Hout. now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Today begins National Radon Action Month, a month dedicated to informing people about the dangers of radon in our homes. We all know it's bad, but what exactly is radon? To find out, WORT producer Nate Wuggiehout spoke with Jessica Maloney, a radon specialist with the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. Approximately 1 in 10 homes in Wisconsin have elevated levels of radon, and the compound causes 21,000 lung cancer deaths each year across the country, according to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. With me today is Jessica Maloney, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services radon specialist. Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So starting things off, what exactly is radon and where exactly does it come from? Well, radon is a colorless and odorless radioactive gas that enters buildings, 
through cracks and foundations, sump crocks and utility lines. Um, it's a naturally occurring substance that comes from the ground, and um, it's a breakdown product of uranium, which is found naturally in soils um, throughout Wisconsin and also the Midwest. Um, so this uranium breaks down and travels um, through rock and soil and um, becomes this gas that can infiltrate into homes. So you said that radon is naturally occurring and it's found in our soil. How does it end up in our homes? Right. So radon, it breaks down from uranium, which is a rock, and it decays pretty quickly and gives gives off radioactive particles. So um, when we inhale these particles, they can damage our very sensitive lung tissue. Um, and long-term exposure to radon can eventually lead to lung cancer. So the radon, it can decay in the lungs and damage our DNA, um, which eventually impairs the ability of the lung tissues to repair itself. So if you're a smoker, your risk is even higher because radon particles can cling to smoke that's inhaled and then more readily enter the lungs where the damage is already occurring from smoking. Um, and so the main, the main health issue with radon is that it, uh, it causes lung cancer and lung cancer is one of those cancers that doesn't have a very particularly great outlook. The five-year survival rate is about 18%, which is the lowest of many leading cancers. Um, and there's poor early detection methods for, for lung cancer. And um, um, unfortunately, more than half of those diagnosed uh, pass away within the first year. So moving back to uh, where to find radon, you said that it's pretty prominently found in the soil in the Midwest and in Wisconsin. Are there some parts of the state that see more radon than others, or is it pretty evenly distributed across the state? Um, well, it's not It's not terribly evenly distributed across the state. Um, there are certain pockets of the state that have um, elevations that we know about based on the rock formations there. If you were to go to our web pages at lowradon.org, there's a map located there and you can um, take a look and zoom in to wherever you might be located and find out um, the test results from some of the um, testing that's been done in Wisconsin. And you can find out the, the risk level um, or radon potential that could be in your home. So what we like to mention with when people look at maps is the map's not going to tell you whether or not your home is going to be high or low. The only way you can know if you have radon is if you test for it. And it's pretty simple to test for it. You can purchase a test kit, um, and this month being National Radon Action Month, um, a lot of promotional giveaways and um, sales are happening for on-radon test kits throughout the state. There's 17 health departments in the state that act as radon information centers, so the entire state has coverage of a radon information center that can offer you a reduced-cost test kit and any further information you might want about how to fix or test for radon. All right, so I've tested my home for radon, and it's looking like my levels are high. What do we do if we know that our homes have dangerous levels of radon? And I guess I should even back up from that. What is a dangerous level of radon to have? 
Yeah. So like we said before, the the only way you know if you have a problem is if you test for it. And your test results come back with a um, unit of measure called a picocurie per liter. And so any radon levels over four picocuries per liter, EPA considers to be elevated. So if you get your sample result back in the mail or an email and it's over four, um, typically we recommend... Um, if, well, I should back that up because there's, there's a couple of different kind of tests you can do. Um, you can do a short-term test, which typically takes between two to three days, and that'll give you sort of a snapshot to see if radon is an issue in your home. And then what we recommend if you have a level that's over four with that short-term test kit is to do an, either another short-term test to confirm that result or do a longer-term test that can be a little bit more accurate as to the exposure levels in your home over a longer period of time. Because we know radon levels can fluctuate um, based on weather patterns and how you use your home. And typically in the winter time is a great time to test because we've got our home's windows and doors closed up and your home basically acts like a little um, a space where radon can sort of be drawn in and sort of hang out. And kind of a a misnomer that people think is that, well, I don't go in my basement much, and that's where the radon is, so I don't have to worry about it. But radon doesn't just hang out in your basement. It can come in through your basement, yes, but it also travels to other levels of your home. So let's say you had a test kit come back at about 10 picocuries per liter in your basement, the next floor up might be around eight or nine picocuries per liter, so it's still elevated. So we've been talking mostly about radon in the air, but can I believe radon can be transferred through the water as well. Is that correct? We can. You can find radon in water. Um, typically, we're more concerned about radon in the air um, just because the way that your body handles radon in water is a little bit different. Um, when you ingest radon in water, your body tends to have it pass through a little bit more efficiently than it does if you breathe it in and your lung tissue becomes compromised. So in water, the elevation level, there's, let's see, there's a, um, a ratio of, um, I think it's 10,000 to 1. Um, so if you had 10,000 picocuries of um, radon in your water that would lead to one picocurie in the air. Um, So typically in Wisconsin, we haven't seen a ton of elevated radon. It's not to say that it's not an issue, um, but typically when a person connects with us and wants to know about the radon in their water, we recommend that they, they test their air first and mitigate that if it's a problem. And mitigation is what we call a system that you install in your home to remove the radon. Um, so we talk about mitigation systems or sub-slab mitigation systems. Um, and if you have elevated radon in your water, um, there are some fixes that can um, take place to, to mitigate that. They're a little bit more expensive, um, but it's certainly a fixable problem as well. So when we know that we have radon in our house, what can we do to remove the radon from our house? What's the process to remove the radon? Sure. The process to remove 
uh, radon from your home is called the mitigation system. So, um, and, and these are typically installed by professionals um, that have taken training and understand how a system should be installed and they're called mitigation specialists. And we have a listing of these contractors on our website at lowradon.org, and they're all certified contractors that have taken training. And typically what a, a mitigation system is, is a, it's a hole that is um, drilled into the slab of your home, and some soil is removed, and then um, there's some piping that is attached, and then it is vented with a fan to the outside of your home. And the fan will draw the radon from underneath the slab of your home and vent it um, above the roof line of your house so it never even enters your home anymore. And so typically, a really good um, radon mitigation system can get your levels below 2 picocuries per liter. Jessica, that's all the questions that I have for you. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share on radon or radon action month? Uh, I just encourage everybody to purchase a test kit from either your local hardware store or from a local radon information center that we have um, listed on our website. The cost for a kit can vary from around $10 to $15, sometimes it's as much as $20. Um, Or you can hire a radon testing contractor to come and do the test for your home. Um, Typically, we recommend hiring someone if you're going to have a a real estate transaction just because those certified contractors can give you the best recommendations for how to mitigate radon in your home. And it's radon action month, so there's no better time to get started on that project. I've been speaking with Jessica Maloney, radon specialist at the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. Jessica, thank you again for talking with me today. You bet. It's a pleasure to be here. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. A look at student government with Cardinal Call, a dissection of owl pellets with Wildlife Weekly, and the new youngest sibling in the universe with Radio Astro. But now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in a flash. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to Local News on WORT. I'm your host, Nate Wuggehout, here with my co-host, Sarah Hopeful. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, while the school is on its winter break, host Hope Carnot begins a series on the Associated Students of Madison, the student government body on campus. ASM really does have a direct impact, so it is important for students to follow along and support ASM in working with administration toward making campus a better place for all students. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. 
This January, we're sharing a mini-series on the Associated Students of Madison, the student government body at UW-Madison. Today, I'm joined by our Features Editor, Gina Musso, to introduce ASM, their history, and their role on campus. Thanks for joining us, Gina. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I kind of think you're one of our resident ASM experts. How long have you covered ASM and what was your experience covering it last year? So last academic year, I worked as the college news editor for the Daily Cardinal and I covered ASM pretty extensively for the fall 2020 and spring 2021 semesters. And this was a really interesting year to cover ASM because the meetings were virtual and there were a lot of differing opinions on the school's COVID policies as we entered our first hybrid semesters. So this allowed for an increase in student activism. Yeah, so for a new student who might be coming to campus, how would you explain ASM to someone who might have never heard of them? So the Associated Students of Madison is the student government body that represents UW-Madison's undergraduate and graduate students on campus. And one of the impactful roles that ASM holds is their Student Services Finance Committee, which oversees the allocation of students' segregated fees, which student pay, students pay each semester, specifically the allocable fees, which are $13.88 per semester for this academic year. So ASM directly oversees this budget for the allocable fees, and they oversee the other segregated fees, but not as directly. And other than that, ASM facilitates the student bus pass program and manages the student activity center. Yeah, so you dug into the history of ASM for us um, this year for a features story. Um, just wondering if you could share a little bit about the history and specifically when the idea of shared governance was first kind of expressed in state law. So shared governance was first guaranteed under Wisconsin State Statute 36095, which gave students an advisory role when looking at policies and other aspects of student life. And how long has ASM been around? What session is this for them? So ASM is currently in their 28th session in leadership at UW-Madison, and ASM started sort of as it functions now in 1994. So I think there's a few branches of ASM. Can you explain kind of how it's organized? So ASM is comprised of 33 elected student council representatives with representatives from every school and college on campus and 200 appointed students on committees. ASM is led by the chair, the vice chair, and a number of other leadership roles, including the chair of the Student Services Finance Committee and other roles within ASM. So for getting elected to the student council body, how can a student get elected? Can anyone run? And how is it sort of set up with um, each representative from a number of different schools? So any student can volunteer to run for student council, and this takes place in the spring semester, so it'll be coming up in a few weeks. This year, candidates are required to submit their candidate declaration before noon on February 25th, 2022, and students can vote for the representatives within their school or college, and voting will take place at the end of March. And voting is really cool because actually students can vote from their phones. It all takes place virtually. Yeah, I never thought about that. That's actually a really cool part of ASM is that voting process. Um, so can any UW-Madison student also become a part of ASM even if they're not looking to get elected? Yeah, so the meetings are open and any student can serve in ASM's open committees. And some of the committee's engagements include coordinating campaigns on and off campus and working on outreach efforts and advocacy. 
Some of the open committees include the Campus Relations Committee, the Equity and Inclusion Committee, the Legislative Affairs Relations Committee, the Shared Governments Committee, and the Sustainability Committee. Yeah, so just switching gears a little bit and thinking back to your past coverage of ASM last year, um, one of the issues that really stands out was ASM's relationship with UWPD, the police department on campus. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on at that point? So last year during the 20th session of ASM, specifically in the fall 2020 semester, ASM declared a vote of no confidence. So it was a collective vote from the student council representatives that kind of just stated that ASM is declaring that they don't have confidence in the UWPD. And while it doesn't have any direct impacts on the function of of UWPD, it definitely made a statement to the university that they did not support this uh, branch of the university. Yeah, so another big issue for ASM last year was the student COVID relief fund, um, which got some pushback from the UW administration because of legal concerns. Can you kind of recap what was happening and why they had wanted to create that fund for students? Yes, so last year, ASM Student Relief Fund aimed to support students with housing and utility-related expenses, and specifically aimed to support students who weren't able to benefit from the federal aid guaranteed in the HEERF packages. And this was an issue that spanned through both semesters of the 27th session term as it was adjusted and debated over based on pushback from the university. This was a particularly interesting topic to cover because despite different hurdles, it showed student perseverance when it came to adjusting the proposal and continuing to push for something that they were passionate about. Yeah, so another issue that was related to COVID-19 that ASM was focused on last year was a pass-fail option. Can you explain kind of why that happened and what is kind of at right now? Yeah, so when classes were switched to fully online in March 2020, um, UW-Madison opted for a disruption grading, so like an SD and UD, like satisfactory grading option for students if they felt that their education was interrupted due to the switch in mode of instruction. So that option was offered as sort of a pass-fail option for spring of 2020. So going into the fall semester, students had hoped to get something of the sort, a pass-fail SDUD option to kind of supplement for any disruption that happened due to the abrupt switch to online learning. But with the fall semester, I don't believe that any kind of pass-fail option was offered just because students like went into the semester knowing that it would be a hybrid or mostly online learning mode, but they continued to push for it in the fall and the spring semester of last year. Yeah, so just switching gears to overall the big picture of ASM, do you have any thoughts on why it's important for students and really anyone who's involved in the campus community to pay attention to what ASM is doing and the issues that they're caring about? Yeah, so when it comes to allocated segregated fees and new initiatives and advocacy on campus, ASM really does have a direct impact. So it is important for students to follow along and support ASM and working with administration toward making campus a better place for all students. Yeah, do you have any um, particular memories or something surprising that you've learned through your time in covering ASM? I think the most surprising thing when covering ASM was just looking at like $13.88 doesn't seem like a lot of money, but 
when we have nearly 48,000 students, that's a lot of money that ASM has control over, direct control over. So it, it definitely surprised me that students had that much access to like directly impacting the student body through such a large amount of money. Yeah. Is there anything else you think listeners should know about the Associated Students of Madison? I think one more thing is just going into the spring 2022 semester, all students should look into the platforms that the candidates from their school or college are running on and choose the representation for the 29th session when voting takes place in late March, because voting numbers for ASM elections are traditionally pretty low. So it would be awesome to see some more students vote for their ASM representation this year, especially because students can literally vote from their phone. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gina, for sharing your experience and your knowledge with us. Of course. Thanks, Hope. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Remember having to dissect an owl pellet in your middle school science class? On this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Samberg tells us about the importance of healthy owl pellets in owls, hawks, and other raptors. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to be talking about the avian digestive system, the gastroenterology session here today on Wildlife Weekly. It's actually kind of exciting, and we don't really talk about it much unless we have a lot of raptors in our care, or, you know, when we've got a species or an animal or an individual that isn't digesting properly. And we're starting to think in our, you know, time period of rehabilitation. Is this animal sick and recovering and just not hungry? Is something going wrong in the digestive system that is a cause for concern? Uh, And then what is the cause? Is it something that would be parasitic? Or is it something that was from trauma? Or is the animal having problems with the medication that they're taking that is making their stomachs upset? Um, And then what kind of signs are we looking for? And what's normal and what's not? Well, we've got a lot of patients that are here in care right now. And I was thinking about it this week because we have so many raptors and then also some waterfowl that have had some interesting digestive issues. Um, so what have we seen? Well, we have a couple of screech owls in care. Uh, one is the red morph, one is the gray morph, which is exciting. And both of them were having trouble with digesting. The first one was, uh, and still is a little bit, although eating better today, had been noted not to have a pellet cast up for multiple days. Now, if you've never seen an owl pellet or heard of an owl pellet, uh, we also call it a casting. And that is a gastric casting, which is a digestion of their food that's incomplete. And it's a whole bunch of stuff that's compacted together in the stomach, which in birds we call the uh, ventriculus. And so the the compacted material of fur and bones and other things that aren't as easily digested as the uh, meat of something like a mouse or a rodent, um, some prey item that they have caught out in the wild, um, that all gets coughed up by the bird. And so actually, uh, owl pellets and raptor pellets in general have been kind of the most 
extensively studied of avian species um, just because they're so cool. And owls tend to have a, a lower pH in their stomach uh, ventriculus, you know, the acid content. And so we tend to see more bones and other structures, um, even full skeletons of the prey that they're eating, uh, you can put it together. And maybe you did that as a kid in your science classes or in anatomy or something like that. So what we start to worry about as rehabilitators is, well, if that bird is not forming a cast or a pellet, and it's been multiple days, we start worrying about whether there's something like crop stasis, which for owls, they actually don't have a crop, but all other birds do. Um, the crop is that pouch that stores the food first before moving down into the stomach so that they can kind of gorge on food. So an owl that uh, doesn't have a crop is just going to eat the food and it's gonna go straight into the stomach. So for them, it's not exactly the same, but it's more worrisome when we start to see like, okay, is the food just sitting there? Is it rotting? Is there now bacterial growth um, or something called refeeding syndrome if it was an emaciated bird or a starving bird? So that can happen if the food is just sitting there in the stomach, but it's not really being adequately digested. Whether that means that the enzymes are lacking or a lot of times just general dehydration and, and it still needs supportive care until it can feel regular again, that can actually lead to the death of an animal if we don't catch it early. So it's uh, worrisome, but definitely something we monitor every single day. We actually mark down on all of our rehabilitation charts, did this animal cast a pellet or not today if it's a raptor? So that would include all of our owls, which is usually daily. And how do they cough up a pellet? Like what happens? Like I, you know, I might decide to do that after my meal, but I think in humans, they'd call that something different and it's not exactly good. But for birds, you know, this is going to be much more natural. Um, so for our hawks and owls, their stomach, the ventriculus actually has contractions that for about 12 minutes before they'll actually cough up the pellet, the amplitude of the contractions will get higher and higher. And then it takes them about eight to 10 seconds or so to cough up the pellet, which is called in specific terms, retroperistalsis. So that's really cool where that pellet is going to then be in the shape of kind of like a little oval. Um, a pellet is hard to describe, I suppose, but kind of like an oval shaped go golf ball. And depending on the species, you've got a tiny screech owl, it might be the size of a marble and you might get something like a great horned owl and that's going to be definitely closer to the size of a golf ball. So uh, it goes past their glottis, um, which is the opening to their respiratory system and it goes out through the mouth and the tongue and it just, they shake their heads a little bit. Uh, if you see an owl shaking its head, a lot of times it's just trying to help get that pellet out of the system. And then uh, we look at it and we say, okay, is it the right color? Is it the right consistency? You know, not too dry, not too wet. And does it look like there's anything of concern? At times we've had animals uh, cough up a pellet of different colors, occasionally like green, maybe there's some bile mixed in and that could be something of concern or no pellet at all is definitely of concern. So we definitely will go back to rehydrating those animals, maybe giving them a tube feeding of a kind of a slurry of food for a while, might require some medical intervention, something called lavage to flush the stomach out and that's at the worst cases, or potentially antibiotics to help if there's um, some sort of uh, bacterial overload that causes an infection uh, or sepsis and you know, the, the last thing is, you know, trying to feed little bits of what we call clean meat. 
So something like chicken breast is clean meat, right? There's no fur, there's no bones. It's just a nice little piece of simple protein. And so that would be something that we're working through with these raptors that are um, potentially emaciated if they're not coughing up their pellets or just not digesting well. So those are very important as part of the digestive system. So besides the uh, food that they eat going down the, obviously the mouth and down the esophagus, past the crop. Uh, so like I said, they go into the crop or past into just the ventriculus if they're owls. Um, and that crop is that big storage pouch. And for raptors, a lot of times if they gorge on a big meal, you'll be able to see it. It's a big, almost baseball size sometimes, right in front of their clavicles. So so if the other stuff uh, is normal, uh, if they cast up their pellet, they're still going to have the rest of the food obviously go down into the rest of the digestive tract. And so that's where it's going to go through um, with the pancreatic and the bile ducts. They, they empty a lot of, um, you know, stuff, I'll just say stuff, stuff in there, digestion of those lipids, uh, the fats and everything, the proteins that they need. And so it goes through and uh, eventually is going to come out the end, which is the cloaca. It goes through the cica, the rectum, and then the cloaca for birds. And sometimes we are looking at those mutes or those feces to look for issues as well. And uh, today, for example, we had a, a goose that was newly uh, admitted because it was shot and unfortunately um, shot and injured, but not recovered. Uh, and so we noticed today that there was a little bit of red-orange coloration to the mutes, the feces, and um, that is a sign that maybe there's some fresh blood in the end of the digestive system um, just before it reaches the cloaca and comes out, and so that's a worry. You know, there's internal bleeding somewhere. Hopefully it's light, but it's not something easily fixable unless it's something that you can identify exactly where in the intestinal system there is potentially, um, you know, let's say perforation or something to fix, and still it's, it's very difficult to fix something like that and takes a really specialized veterinarian. So we are looking at mutes all the time, looking for black feces, uh, we're looking for green feces, anything abnormal, rather than the regular um, nice small bit of white, brown, and clear that comes out together, which is for birds. Um, they don't have a separate uh, urinary and, you know, urine and feces coming out. It's just all in those mutes together as one. So that is from start to finish uh, the digestive system. We are doing our best in rehabilitation to figure out if there are any problems in that process and trying to fix them accordingly if we can. Okay, so that's what we have. We've got raptors. They are uh, doing lots of things here in rehabilitation. Want to make sure we're giving them the best care possible and watching and monitoring all of their behaviors. Uh, so that's a little bit about the digestive system and I hope you enjoyed this segment. So thanks again. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We've all heard of the New Year's baby, but what about the New Year baby planet? On this week's Radio Astronomy, host Dan Rabarczyk shows us the youngest planet in the known universe that was newly discovered. Happy New Year. And welcome to the first radio astronomy show of 2022. My name is Dan Rabarczyk. 
Every year around this time, we celebrate the Earth taking a full orbit around the sun. That has happened billions of times in the history of our solar system, which is billions of years old. But a paper published this week announced the discovery of one of the youngest known planets, just 38 million years old. Now, that may sound old, but it's less than 1% of the age of the Earth. This planet, known as Kepler 1627ab, orbits a star similar to our sun in the Delta Lyrae cluster, a group of stars about 1,000 light years from Earth. This cluster is young, about 38 million years old. The reason we know that is that we can observe the type of stars and the properties of the stars in this cluster. Large stars burn out and die faster than small stars. Some stars only live for a few million years, while others can live for many billions of years. And astronomers know, with good precision, just how long different types of stars last, and how longer-lived stars evolve. So if we see stars in a cluster that only live for a short amount of time, that means they must have formed recently. By analyzing the stars in Delta Lyrae, astronomers determined that the cluster is between 33 and 46 million years old, with an estimate of about 38 million years. Now, naturally, any planets orbiting the stars in Delta Lyrae must be less than 38 million years old, since planets form around stars from the same original cloud of gas and dust. That's why it was so exciting to confirm the detection of a planet around one of Delta Lyrae stars. Most exoplanets, that is, planets outside of our solar system, have been observed around stars that, like our sun, are billions of years old. But if we want to understand the different stages of planetary evolution, it's important to observe much younger planets. The way that astronomers discovered planet Kepler 1627ab was by measuring periodic dips in the light coming from its star, caused by the planet passing between us and the star, blocking out some of the star's light. This was done with the Kepler Space Telescope, which explains the origin of the planet's name. Astronomers were able to estimate the size of the planet, which has a radius about four times larger than Earth's. This planet is now the youngest known planet from all those identified by the Kepler mission. It provides a unique window through which to study the early stages of planet formation. Now, the team of astronomers hopes to follow up these observations in a few different ways. Naturally, they'd like to use a similar approach to determine the ages of other planets identified by the Kepler mission and see if they can find other similarly young planets. Additionally, they'd like to observe the planet to probe the early stages of planet formation. For example, they want to search for signs of the planet's atmosphere to determine how and when planets form and retain their atmosphere. Current data, which reveals virtually nothing about the planet's atmosphere, is compatible with a variety of different scenarios. But complementary observations that specifically target the planet's atmosphere can confirm or rule out different models for planetary atmosphere evolution. This exciting discovery helps us understand where planets like ours come from. In the Milky Way, there are actually more planets than there are stars. That's hundreds of billions of planets. So to understand what these planets are like, how they form, and where our world fits into the cosmic context, 
we'll need to keep searching for planets like Kepler-1627ab. That's all for Radio Astronomy this week. Have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer tonight was Sophie Leahy. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lorenzen engineered the show, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your producer and host, Nate Wuggiehout. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Spanish Language News with Enrique Joe Patio. Good night.